can't believe it, but we made it past 100 episodes. This episode, episode 101, is an episode that is definitely going to be a must-listen. The episode is all about using linguistics to help identify and prevent fraud and other crimes. I found Dr. Carter via Becky Holmes, aka Becky Hates Spinach, which was episode number 80. Do you watch true crime and listen to real-life interviews? When you listen to real-life interviews, you hear tone, word choice, inflection. I am fascinated many times by all of this. In this episode, we talk behavioral science in System 1 and System 2. The power of persuasive language can be used for good and or evil. I will be taking a few weeks off after this to work on some new ideas for the podcast in 2023. Stay tuned and please reach out to me if you have any suggestions or ideas. Here's to 2023. Please enjoy. It is episode 101, and I can't tell you how happy I am to have Dr. Elizabeth Carter from the UK on Fraudish today, because I think we met via sort of a daisy chain. I call it the daisy chain of podcast guests, and we connected on LinkedIn, and you were so gracious, and um, I'm just thrilled to have you. Hello. Thank you for having me on. This has been a long time coming, so I'm I'm equally thrilled. (laughs) And um, we're going to start a little bit with a word association. And um, after the word association, you can tell the audience sort of your backstory, but I'm really excited to do the word association because of your backstory. So when I say the word fraud, what do you think of? Oh my goodness. (laughs) I think huge. Huge. Okay. Okay. And when you hear the word ethics, what do you think of? Oh, fantastic. I'm a real fan of ethics. I, I'm one of the oh, rare good. ones. Yes, I'm one of the rare ones that really gets excited about, about ethics and about in, in looking at ethical um, notions and, and how, how to navigate them. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my gosh. And then um, not a word association, but who makes better embezzlers, men or women? Oh, now this is this is a tricky one, really. I don't think that there is really a gender dimension to it. I think that perhaps the modus operandi might be different, perhaps. Um, and also reporting is quite different. And I think quite often women pose as men to make themselves seem more authoritative as well, if it's if it's via messages as well. So the the, the true level um balance of, of male female embezzlers is isn't really found but yes I'm unsure okay okay so now Liz we can call you Liz because you're just a friend of Fraudish um give the backstory how did you end up on Fraudish like your career <laughs> uh, well I started off as a linguist Uh, I uh, started off as a psycholinguist at the University of Essex. That's where I started my academic career. And I learned all about um, different linguistic methodologies, which has actually carried me through my entire career and is actually my secret weapon when we come to trying to understand and unpick fraud. So it's something that's kept me in great stead over, I'm not going to say how many years, but very many years. So I started as an undergrad doing psycholinguistics at the University of Essex. And I became so fascinated with how language can be used in different situations that I started to think about 
How could it be used in the most extreme situations by very bad people for nefarious reasons? And that's when I defected from the linguistics department, which is my academic home, to the criminology department. Well, more specifically, the Department of Sociology at the University of Essex. And that's where I did two masters because I was quite greedy um, in, in criminological research, criminological research methods. And then I stayed on for my PhD as well. Um, now, interestingly, this wasn't on fraud, but it was on the interaction between police officers and suspects in police interviews and how officers and suspects communicate with one another. And I found that police officers quite often could use certain types of language in certain types of ways to circumvent the rules of the Police and Criminal Evidence Act, which all UK police officers are bound by. Um, and I also found that suspects used language in various ways to make themselves seem perhaps more innocent than they were. And I was fascinated by it. So that was the start of the start of that that fascination with language. So um, my kids had to grow up with me being, you know, and you have children and like it's just um, the words we choose are so incredibly important, whether you're a police officer, a perpetrator, a parent. And um, are you familiar with Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky and System 1 and System 2 thinking? Yes, I am indeed. Yes. So can you talk a little bit about that? Because I know System 1, we just blurt things out. But as I've gotten more mature, I've become so much more careful about word choice and not in a bad way, like in a good way, like to help people to make a suggestion. So can you talk about system one and system two and how it works with with I'm going to say police officers? Did you do that type of work with police officers? Yes, absolutely. And the main thing I did around there, well, system one thinking is the immediate thinking, your, your instinctual response, your being human. System two thinking is that deeper level of uh, curiosity and actually thinking about actually what is going on here. Really hard and really intensive, cognitively intense for you to remain in system two for a prolonged period of time. So we end up in system one quite often. And uh, before I go into the police interview aspect of it, I can give you an example of system one and system two thinking. So when you're driving your car to a place you've driven 100 times before, maybe the school run or, or somewhere else, and you can't remember how you got there when you park up at the school gates, it's because you're using system one thinking. You're using autopilot. You know you're doing it. You can drive the car and you've got there versus the first, second or fifth time you ever drove a car. When you've got your hands on the steering wheel, if it's if it's a, if it's a manual, you've got your foot on the clutch. You're really thinking about everything. That's system two thinking. System one thinking. You're used to it. You know what you're doing. You don't actually double think. Now, in relation to the police interview, for example, we do see police officers sometimes. Now, this research was a little while ago, so things have changed since. But you do see. I did see police officers assuming guilt of suspects in the police interview. So the suspect is sat right in front of you and I've heard questions from police officers to me saying, well, how do I get them to confess? And I say, well, no, this is system one thinking because the suspect is suspected of committing a criminal offence. They are not necessarily guilty just because they're in front of you. This is an investigative interview in the UK particularly. This is not an interrogation. I know it's different between the US and the UK and it's fascinating differences, but that presumption of guilt goes against the UK criminal justice system, but it's definitely system one thinking. You see someone in front of you, you automatically think, 
you're there for a reason. We need to find out that reason. Are you guilty? How do we get them to confess? So my answer, which is quite provocative, really, is, well, you don't unless you want to always have false confessions. So if you get a confession 100% of the time, most of those confessions will be false confessions. That's not that's not what we want. And that really boosts police officers into the system too, thinking, ah, oh, yes, investigation. They know why they're there. They're really good, very professional people. But I think that system one thinking does get us to be really reactive and base our understandings on instincts of what we see right in front of us rather than take a step back. And this happens in fraud as well. When we get a message from somebody, you want to act urgently, you want to really respond quickly, and before you know it, your money's gone. So system two is very good for us. Very difficult to maintain. It's the, I call it the sleep on it. And, you know, um, but people like action. And and also, say in the, um, an example of, say, a crime scene or something like that, they're tired. They've been on duty for 12, 14, 16 hours you know what? They're humans. They want to get home. And um, the system one is the, I'm going to call it the lazier thinking. Whereas you come back the next day and you've thought about it, you've slept on it. I mean, I remember growing up, my parents are like, just sleep on it. Now, my parents were not behavioral science people whatsoever, but like it is the more thoughtful, ethical, thinking. But we just, you know, I call it Homer Simpson. Simpson is um, you know, system one and Spock is system two. And like, yeah, yeah. So um, I love that you've used that. And like, then the other thing that I have to go to is neuro-linguistic programming. Mm. I like am a fan of what I know about it, but then I've recently read some stuff and some people say it's a little woo-woo-ish. So can you give me your opinion on NLP? Yes, I, I don't subscribe to NLP. I do. I do have some reservations. Um, so I don't I don't really go into that. I don't really at all use that. But the basis of it, or trying to understand patterns of behavior is something that's very interesting. Um, so, yes, I agree with the with the bedrock of it and the, the thinking behind it, but not necessarily the methodology. Well, and I got I became familiar with it through um, nonverbals. And then also there's a woman who has a podcast. It's a great podcast. She has a background in NLP, but it's all about sales. So then that's where it gets to the sort of like not woo woo, but um, more manipulative. It could be. Do you? Is yes. that? Yes. And it's really interesting you say about sales, because I think a lot that underpins fraud is something that I've turned genre mapping, which is fraudsters mapping legitimate genres. So sales techniques that sit right on the border of being good practice or not good practice, but not illegal. So not good, but still legal. And what fraudsters do is that they take those practices urgency scarcity buy now hurry before the sale ends you get the ticker on website saying buy in the next 20 minutes you get free shipping all of those things are allowed legally what fraudsters do they harness the fact that this is normalized we are normalized into a state of urgency normalized into buying it now into pressing a button and your money's gone in in five seconds that it's a good thing that you can bank so quickly 
And when we see nefarious practices, these illegal practices, those alarm bells that we're always told about don't go off because it's what we see. It's what it's how we buy things legitimately. We click on links from legitimate companies. You know, we, we give our data away really because we're expected to. And then when the bad people do it, we're so used to it. We've been groomed into it that we don't realize actually these people doing it are the bad ones. Well, and you recently did, and I'm going to put it in the show notes on November 30th, you did a YouTube course or not course, but um, it's really, really good. And um, it's learning from domestic abuse, but your scam teams and let's talk about that. You also recently, what's the award you won? Oh, yes. Oh, I'm really pleased about this. And it was genuinely a shock as well. You know, I I am genuinely one of those people that I turned up to the award ceremony, absolutely thrilled to be there. And I know people always say that, but I was, I was beaming from ear to ear and I did not expect to win at all. And they called my name and you could have blown me down with a feather. Um, And it's a (laughs) really, it's a Tackling Economic Crime Award and it's for um, Outstanding Tackling Economic Crime Professional of the Year, uh, which I'm absolutely thrilled to bits about because um, it's nominated and judged by um, um, key influential people I look up to in the industry across public, private, third sector. So you've got banks there, you've got the police, you've got trading standards, you've got um, all, all of the governing bodies. Um, and it's yeah, absolutely, absolutely amazing. Um, and as an academic, you know, uh, all the other finalists and all the other categories, I believe, were all part of your know, big anti-fraud corporations, big banks and so on. And there's little old me at university, you know, just on my own. And I thought, no way. But um, I was absolutely so, so thrilled. It's really nice to get to get the recognition. Um, but also, on a serious note, it's really good to then be able to use that little bit of platform to then be able to get some really good fraud protection messages out there as well. So it's it's a really lovely thing to be recognised, but also even more lovely to be able to then maybe get to hold of some more data and get some good messages out there. Absolutely. So then um, we have something that I'm going to call as our soapbox and it's victim shaming. Yes. So I, I want to hear your take on victim shaming because I don't do more sort of the scams. It's more insider embezzlement, insider trusted employees, but the whole victim shaming, oh my, it is, it is my soapbox because I hashtag no victim shaming. Absolutely. Well, let me uh, share that soapbox with you. We'll stand on it together. There's plenty of room. Um, Absolutely. And this is actually the number one thing that I do with my work, that I want to do with my work, is to tackle these negative narratives around victims of crime, victims of fraud specifically, specifically. And what we do find are these pervasive negative narratives. You hear them. How could you be so stupid? How could you fall for this scam? All of those those narratives. And the difficulty is this multifaceted difficulty. So number one, this person has been a victim of a crime, a really serious crime that's financially and psychologically damaging, hugely. The, the damage has been described in research as akin to the psycho, psychological damage um, that someone experienced through rape. So it's really, really huge psychological damage here. And then... When you tell people, they then make fun of you. 
they don't believe you you don't get that support and socially you are shunned and feel ashamed you're much less likely as research on this you're much less likely to report that crime so then we can't get an accurate reflection of it and also you do hear these negative narratives still in the criminal justice system as well it's like well did you protect yourself and if you didn't you know you are kind of to blame so these negative narratives are really damaging on so many different levels but i've also found this is new research that's coming out in the new year that our fraud protection messaging across the UK, but also worldwide, does perpetrate this itself without, you know, unintentionally, of course, but by putting messages out there saying, don't fall for a scam, do these five top five tips and you'll be safe. Number one, you wouldn't say to somebody, don't fall for domestic violence, don't fall for coercive control. You would never say that. These people have been groomed. Um, and it's not the victim's fault. This is victim blaming messaging, you know, inadvertently. But also, if you give top tips to keep safe from fraud, implicitly you're saying that if you do then become a victim of fraud, you haven't, you, you failed to protect yourself adequately. So we need to really get away from that messaging that you can absolutely 100% protect yourself from fraud, because people who do become victims then feel like they're in inadequate. So, yes, I'm absolutely with you on this soapbox. And um, a lot of the work that I've been doing is to try and to, to tackle these negative narratives societally, but then also in public sector, private sector, charity sector. Well, it's kind of like, I mean, you know, a long time ago, long time ago in my lifetime, if you were a victim of rape, they would put the victim on the stand and ask them what they were wearing. Yes, yes. And, and I have a friend just recently who clicked on a link. And just this past weekend, I was staying with her and her husband. And her husband was like, I can't believe she did. She clicked on it. He's like, the amount of hours I have had to spend to clean this mess up. Because she clicked on a link because she just doesn't pay any attention. That was his thing was, she just doesn't pay any attention. She just clicks whatever. Yeah, I, it was, you know, and yeah, it's a huge imposition on him because mm -hmm. he has a job where he can make phone calls unlike her job. Um, and he, you could tell he was very, very annoyed. And he's going to, I'm going to say, lord it over her for a while, unfortunately. Yeah. And that's, there is a real difficulty here because no one would willingly be a victim of crime. And actually what happens, it's not laziness or anything like that, is that foresters really get you when you do become a victim of this crime, they get you because it's the right context. It feels right. It looks right. Everything about it does not give off any of these alarm bells that we're all trained to keep an eye out for. So there's nothing to stop us. And we are in that system one thinking and you click it before you think because nothing oh there's there's no barrier there there's nothing stopping you there's no breaks and what this this paper that i've written that's coming out very soon actually says that it's about our our humanness our very human beingness is what's being exploited and messages saying well just don't click actually it's telling us to stop being human because actually we do click on links because a lot of the legitimate messages that we get, you do have to click in order to subscribe or to do whatever. So then to say never click on a link, that's not something that's possible. And people do have lapses in concentration, of course, but without 
a serious organized criminal on the other end, that wouldn't do anything. So the blame really does sit at the at the door of the fraudster and not of the victim. And that is really difficult, specifically in this case as well, where you're then being blamed. And then, like you say, it's being lauded over them, you know, that continuously they've already been a subject of, of abuse, really. And then, you know, that's perpetuated again. You know, you really have that self-blame, which then does also leave you very vulnerable and susceptible for further frauds if you're feeling so low as well and you're blaming yourself and you're looking for a way maybe to make it better well and i moved recently and i got a text last week saying you know usps and it was a phone number i didn't recognize you know please click on this to verify your address for this package it's the holidays i might be getting a package and i was just like you know what i'm not clicking because they'll find me eventually it might be late I don't even, and I don't know if it's a scam, but like, this is someone, I mean, I work with this all the time, let alone, you know, someone else who hasn't worked with it all the time. And most people would go, oh, it's the holidays. It might be a present for my child from some relative. I'm just going to click to verify my address. It's like, nope, I've just, you know, yeah. So um, absolutely. And that idea that that parcel is there waiting for you and it has to get to you and your child's going to miss out on the present. All of these things have this this underlying, this implicit pressure on you. So you don't feel pressured by somebody. So those alarm bells don't go off, but it's an internal pressure. And, you know, that system one thinking will be, yes, I've got to click it. I've got to do it because actually however many times out of 10, it will actually be UPS or whoever, because that's how they communicate. So then when you don't click on it, you don't know. You don't know. Is it real? Is it not real? And sometimes in these cases, there's no way of triangulating it. I always say verify the source. But in these kind of messages, that's the only way they communicate. So the only thing you can do is not click on it and then think, well, like you say, They'll find me eventually. They'll find another way. You know? Well, and here I am thinking about it a week later. Like, should I have done it? I don't know. Yeah. So um, I have to stand up for a second to get a book to see if you have this book. So um, you guys on the podcast can't see it. But have you read this, Snakes in Suits, When Psychopaths Go to Work? No, I haven't, but it looks really good. I know they say don't judge a book by its cover, but that is a fantastic cover there. Someone in the suit with a, with a snake around their neck. Oh my goodness. I know. I'll put it in the show notes. Um, but uh, it's like when psychopaths go to work, just the snakes in suits. Again, we have these um, preconceived notions that like, you know, someone is really successful. They've just got to be really, really smart. Mm. But, you know, there's been studies done where there's more CEOs that are like narcissists and psychopaths, you know, than others. And um, this goes to the tying of academia to real life, which I think is so incredibly important because everyone knows my husband was a professor and we live in little bubbles. And to be able to tie the two of them together, I think is so incredibly important. So when people like you reach out to the private in the public sector. It's just, you can learn so incredibly much. And I also think academia has gotten um, maybe better about bullet pointing things and realizing that people have, you know, shorter attention spans. 
Yes, but also that this this fad in academia where it has to be really overly complicated and really convoluted language to try and prove how clever we are, these kind of things. That is really going out of fashion because, to be honest, I don't like reading those papers. You have to wade through like treacle. Um, but I have to say this is something that's, that has really exploded in the last few years. And UK institutions, at least, are judged by the number of academics that do something called knowledge exchange and knowledge transfer, which is reaching outside of academia and actually having impact in what in what we do with our research. Now, I do this because, I mean, corny as it is, I really do want to make a difference. And it turns out the research I do is making a difference so i'm i'm all in i'm all in as long as people are listening i'm I'm well even if they're not i'm still shouting you know i was shouting for a good five years before anyone would listen you know and you have to really get that traction going but it's so, it is so important to be able to change those messages and put them in a format that is accessible and not not understandable because it is understandable but there's nobody who's going to click on an academic paper that's behind a paywall to anybody outside academia, which is awful, and read through it and then get the messages and then transform them into practice. There's nobody who's going to do all of that heavy lifting if they ever find a paper that no one, and five people read anyway. So there's a, been a big drive, and I've been part of this, to make papers open access. Anyone can click on them. Um, make them, um, my, my papers always walk the reader through the analyses. I show them the methods I use. You can see the extracts there and you can read them. It's almost like a story unfolding. But then also what I've done with the help of Thames Valley Police a couple of years ago, we used my romance fraud research, which I can provide a link for so you know um, listeners can have a look at it. So what, having said that I've made it accessible, you can judge it, all those listening, and tell me if it actually is or not. Um, but we um, put together a, an e-booklet that takes the key findings and puts them in a public-facing, accessible way. And one of the most proudest moments of my career to date is when I got a message from Essex Police saying that they've taken these, this, these booklets and they use them on door-to-doors with people who are victims of romance fraud, that they're trying to tell them they're victims of romance fraud, but they, they, not, they won't listen yet. They're too grim to understand, to listen. And one of these officers, um, David Gillies, he emailed me and he said, we've made a difference. There was someone, there was a victim of a crime, £60,000 down, third police visit we showed them the booklet we showed them a romance fraud questionnaire and he said it was a light bulb moment and I thought my goodness me this this is what it's all about taking that research putting it with the help of the police putting it in a format that not only can be readable and understandable but in the hands of the people who need to have it too that I mean that is what it's all about you know well, yeah, that's, I mean, I, yeah, that is just so good and so meaningful. And, um, you know, like tenure in the United States, it, it's like, do you get, do you get points for that? Um, the tenure system in the U.S.? No, but you know what? You can go home at night and know that you made a difference. Like, so it's kind of like, um, I mean, there's a lot of academics who have social media presence and mm. I think it's great, but, you know, my husband, you know, he's no longer with us, but like he wasn't, he was a little bit old school about that. And I would always push him about, oh, LinkedIn and things like that. But um, it's, it's kind of like academics 
need to be promoting. And I think that, you know, it helps them in their career, maybe, but it really helps the public. Absolutely. And I think hopefully long gone are the days of the ivory tower where academics will be locked away, navel gazing and, and, you know, researching for their own interests and to advance academia in their areas, but then with no outward impact. And I think that developing just academia is not enough. It isn't. We need to be actually, I mean, I'm a social scientist, so I, I feel this more than more than most maybe other fields, but we actually need to not only study the social world, but actually make a positive difference in, the, in that social world. And at the very least, if you can't do that, at the very least, make people aware of what you do, why you do it, and where it could make a difference, you know, inspire other people to look at these, look at these things, and to question the status quo. So, you know, these narratives around victims, why do why do we get lots of responses, for example, um, in response to the Tinder swindler on Netflix um, back of last year on Twitter, everywhere, all gold diggers, all these negative, negative narratives around these victims, incredibly brave victims of, of this awful crime. And why why do people instantly think these things about them? Why is that the first place people go to? And these are the questions that you would, as a social scientist, dig down into and go, well, what is it about this crime that really puts people backs up? And then try and dig down, and then you can try and change those narratives, put different narratives out there. Well, it's just like it's like Bernie Madoff, which now he's old school compared to SB Sam Bankman Freed with the FTX thing. But so many people didn't feel badly for the victims of Bernie Madoff. They said they're just a bunch of rich people who, you know, lost their house in Florida or their private jet or blah, blah, blah. Totally wrong. But now we have, which is I, I'd like to ask you because it's kind of in the news, the whole Sam Bankman Freed. SBF and yeah. FTX. People are going to come out. This is my guess and say they were greedy. They wanted to hop on the crypto. They didn't know, you know, too bad. So sad. What is your response to that? We will hear those narratives. And this is all about the ideal victim. If you are not completely innocent and you know, there's there's nothing against you. So you haven't tried to make any money. You haven't gone after something that's, you know, above your station. You haven't you haven't tried to advance yourself. There's nothing in it for you. Then you would be a more ideal victim. If you're trying to advance yourself in life, if you're trying to make some money, if you're trying to put yourself out there, particularly if you're a woman as well, trying to do those things, it's a double, it's a double negative here. Um then you will then be blamed, partially blamed. And we see victim blaming as well when, you know, reportings of sexual assault, for example, and rape, you will see in the papers very often, oh, she was a primary school teacher. She was walking during the day. Why do they need to mention these things? If she was not a primary school teacher, if she was walking at night, if she was walking in her pants and bra or knickers and bra for the US audience, <laughs> um, would she be deserving of this crime? No, absolutely not. So we do have all of these narratives about the ideal victim and the non-ideal victim and victims of fraud who are rich or who are trying to make money themselves. They are 
really they are come down on really hard really unfairly by the by the general public and it's because it's this this idea that well you know it's your fault because you were trying to chase something more you were trying to get more money but nothing nothing's their fault when you have a perpetrator and let's face it perpetrators of these kinds of crimes do feed into serious organized criminality as well and all sorts of awful areas it's their fault the fact that the victim was doing whatever it doesn't matter and it's the perpetrator without the perpetrator there would be no crime and we have to keep reminding people of this it's very difficult to tackle those those narratives well and I'm going to say I'm very guilty of this one is Elizabeth Holmes victims at Theranos. Um, But I also listened to Tyler Schultz, who is the grandson of, you know, George Schultz, who was victimized. And um, apparently George Schultz never really came to his grandson and said, I was, you know, I was wrong or whatever. But he did say when Elizabeth Holmes came to George Schultz, she said, I am looking for a cure for a test for pancreatic cancer. She knew his first wife had died of pancreatic cancer. And Tyler Schultz says he thinks that that was his grandfather's way of saying that she manipulated that conversation was if she had died of lung cancer, she would have said, I'm finding a test for lung cancer. So this goes to the perpetrator. And a lot of people are just like, and myself included, you know what, George Schultz, the attorney, the DeVos family, I don't feel sorry for him. You know, just don't. Sorry. But then when I hear that Elizabeth Holmes went to George Schultz and said, I'm trying to develop a test that could save someone like your ex-wife from pancreatic cancer, then I'm like, okay, now I feel bad. Yes, absolutely. See, that's that's the human element there. And the fact that this manipulation was done specifically for something that 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 she knew would tug on those heartstrings, would knew would be so personal. And this is what fraudsters do. They they really hone and contextualize what they're saying to really make it really resonate in their target's mind. Think, oh, this makes sense, or this is something I'm really passionate about. And they use that, they use that knowledge and they use that visceral response, I think, that instinctual response against against that person. So they're acting system one again, they're they're acting in in what they believe to be a really reasonable way. And then they find that they're defrauded. And then the whole world is turned upside down. Who can you believe? Who can you trust? Yeah. So you said something at the beginning that I want to hit back to is um, about women pretending to be men online. Mm. So let's talk about that a little bit, because a lot of times people think that, you know, it's the Nigerian prince or something like that. And um, do you have a breakdown of verbal communications versus online communications? No, I don't. This is something that would be really interesting to do, though. I have done research on both. So I've done I've I've, um, written research paper on postal scams and mostly they were psychic scams. So someone writing to say they're a psychic and basically it's, it's mass mailed. But they do have some details like the name and the address of the person, so it looks a bit more personalised. Um, and they, they were really cruel, actually. Like, you know, 
you've lost your job, your life is awful, your family are going to hate you unless you do this thing. So really very cruel, but also very easy to spot for most people. So that's why they mail so many out, because they know that 90% of people aren't going to do it, but the people who do are really vulnerable. They can really take advantage of them. And then also romance fraud, I've written quite extensively about romance fraud, which is is written and also oral as well. And it's a really long-term back and forth. And the interesting difference between written fraudulent communications and verbal fraudulent communications is that it's instant. When you have someone on the phone, and I've got a, a, um, this this recent paper I've just written is, is telephone fraud. And you have someone on the phone and it's instant. The response is expected. There's this interactional compliance that's needed, question, answer, um, talk, response. And it happens and you don't pause because it would seem odd. It's not the way we communicate. It's back and forth. There's also very little time to verify what's going on as well. It, it feels socially awkward and people don't think to say, wait there I'm just going to check you are who you say you are so instinctively the communication medium of being on the phone lends itself to that instant you're going to do it instantly and you're scripted to do things I'll just pop onto your computer just now and people will do that whereas when it's written you can actually move away you can talk to somebody else and so what I always say to people is that if you're speaking to someone on the phone and they're saying they're from a company any legitimate company would welcome you with open arms if you say, listen, I just want to check who you say you are. All legitimate companies, if you want to deal with them, if they are worth, worth their salt at all, would actively encourage you to go away and check and call them back. So I always, I always say that. But that's what telephone or any kind of oral conversation doesn't have going for it. It's so instant and you're really pressurised without being pressurised by the person. So I wonder if you get this. So if I'll go to a social event or something like that and someone will ask me what I do and I tell them and then they're like, oh, I have a friend yeah. who, you know, do, are you kind of the hit of the cocktail party too? <laughs> yes. Well, I, I get one of two responses, really. Um, or maybe three. One of them is very flattering. Oh, it's so exciting. What's so interesting? Oh, if I mentioned criminologists. Oh, wow. Amazing. Friends and linguists. Wow. Which is very nice. And then I go into detail and they soon fall asleep and then they go... <laughs> <laughs> much like my students when I talk to them about theory oh, I'm sorry students um but then I also get the my friend is in the situation can you help and that's a very difficult thing really because what I don't do is look at live cases and make judgments um what I can do is refer to the right authorities um quite often what I do is have friends that are angry with the, with the criminal justice system response they're not listening they're not progressing the case we reported it but it's not going anywhere and that's something I can't really help with nor can I say this is definitely a crime and and back and back that up which is really awful and I, I feel terrible about that but I can't get involved um in in that process because it would it would skew the, the criminal justice process um but then I also get um questions about Oh, gosh, well, I sent you a text message the other day. What did you think about that? And are you always judging what we're saying? <laughs> um, because I'm a linguist and I and I pick apart language and, and I find the meanings underneath, behind and underneath what people are saying. I said, no one's got time for that. <laughs> you know? um, 
you know, ex-boyfriends, oh, is that why you split up with me? Because no, no, no. Um, no, I definitely do not have any interest in um, analysing <laughs> friends' text messages, but people do get a bit a bit funny with me sometimes. They just met me and they, they hear that I analyse language and they're like, oh, and they think I can kind of, you know, tell their darkest secrets from the way they're talking to me. It's fun games to pretend I can, but I can't. <laughs> oh, that's so funny. So um, I have some friends who say that I'm rather abrupt in my texting, but like sometimes it just calls for a yes or a no. And actually, so one night I was out at dinner with a good friend of mine and he goes, let's do a text audit of you. And sure enough, he pulls up the text audit. Yes, no, tomorrow, 3 p. And like, it just, I, and I was like, but like usually I'm walking or I in the car and hitting respond or something like that. Yeah. But it's like, it's just a yes or no. So I, I get a lot of grief for my, I'm going to say brief answers, but they're succinct. Well, that's like, the thing. They do the job. They do the job. Yeah. You don't need all this extra flowery stuff. And well, there is actually something about text messages. Now, um, forensic linguists have used text messages in real cases as evidence um, to, you know, authorship analysis of text messages. And there's 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 one case where um, the, the killer of, of the poor victim used her phone to say, oh, I'm just moving away. Um, I'm fine. Don't contact me. And all these kind of things. But she was already dead. And um, forensic linguists at um, Aston University in Birmingham used those and used authorship analysis to be able to show that actually the the words and the way she was using words and the, and the way she was constructing words, that the letters she was using, whether they're brief or, or longer, substituting numbers in, for example, or not, weren't consistent with her previous messages, but they were consistent with somebody else's who turned out to be the killer. So I do when I write text messages, I am always really <laughs> cognizant of the fact that if I change the way I write, that later on if something awful happens to me, then it would skew forensic analysis. So I have to be consistent now. I can't suddenly put two as a number instead of T-O. So <laughs> you know, just in case. And I think that is probably uh, where forensic linguistics has made me a bit odd. I mean, People who know me would say it's more than one place I'm a bit odd, but that is one of the most <laughs> obvious ways that I'm a bit odd. I'm very aware that I need to consistently text <laughs> in case something awful happens. <laughs> well, you know, there was a woman who allegedly um, killed her husband. Um, she got caught embezzling and blah, blah, blah. I'll put the link in the show notes. But um, they looked at his phone and forever he never used emojis. And then all of a sudden he started using emojis. It turned out they believed that she took his phone and was sending messages unbeknownst to him yeah. and was using emojis. And for the longest time, my husband never used emojis. And then he started because my kids are like, dad, it's easier just to put a smiley face or a heart for mom. Yeah. So, but yeah, it's that it's patterns. We, you know, and when all of a sudden you start using different ways to communicate people look at that so yes, absolutely and it can be indicative of something you think oh dear or but then also there this idea of a linguistic fingerprint is a bit of misnomer really because our language does evolve and it does change and it's never still um so yes it's, it's a bit of a bit of a mix of the two really but it's absolutely fascinating i will be endlessly fascinated with language in all of its guises yeah, absolutely. So um, 
kind of closing out, are you watching anything on TV or listening to any podcasts that you are like, oh, these are amazing and we've got to get the word out to the audience that they should be watching this. Like, did you watch Lupin? I was on a Lupin kick. No, no, I haven't actually, no. Oh, Lupin was on like um, Netflix or something. Oh, okay. I'll put that in the show notes too. Um, Are there any TV shows or podcasts that you recommend to the audience? Well, there, there is one actually, and I love it because it's so varied, but it's on it's on the same um, theme um, always, and it's called Cybercrimology, and I absolutely love it. Um, I have been on it as well, full disclosure. <laughs> um, but when I was invited on, I listened to the to the back catalogue, and it's absolutely brilliant, really fun, and it's all aspects of cybercrime, aspects that I wouldn't even know about if I hadn't listened to the podcast, and it's just, it is absolutely fascinating. So I would definitely recommend cybercrimology. Okay. I'll put that in the show notes. That's awesome. Um, and then finally I asked this question, what is the last thing you Googled before you got on the podcast? Do you remember? Oh gosh. Hmm. I don't know. Oh, do you know, I, I, I do know because I was f- trying to find directions. It, it was this morning and I, I'm proud to say I haven't. And I, I use DuckDuckGo rather than Google um, because they don't they don't track you at all. So I'm just right. uh, yeah, so I, I use that. So I DuckDuckGo. It doesn't sound quite quite right. But um, how to get to Broadcasting House in London, because I, I did some filming for the BBC this morning um, and I'm still like a bit like Woo, from it. So um, and also from trying to navigate London, because although I am from South London and London is my home, I, I get lost within five paces of anywhere. Um, so, yes, I had to Google the directions or duck, duck, go the directions and then have my phone in front of my face while I was walking <laughs> along. Um, luckily, my phone is so old that no one would want to snatch it from my hand, even if I was <laughs> throwing it about in the air. No, no one would want it. But yes, that was the last thing. Directions, London directions. Okay. <laughs> and is there anything that I haven't asked you that you want to get out to the audience? Like this is, you know, for your PR, you're going to be on BBC. You've been on numerous BBC episodes. Yes. Well, I think this is something that is is wonderful to be asked to do. And it's a really good platform. It's also, I mean, terrifying <laughs> for about five days beforehand and then for about 10 minutes before the cameras start rolling. And I'm, I'm absolutely terrified. And then the cameras go on, the lights are on, the mic's there. And then they say, tell me this about fraud. And I'm like, right, I can tell you everything you want to know. As you know, I can just talk and talk and talk and all the nerves go. And the brilliant thing about that is that it's a direct link to the audience, to the general public who are interested in fraud, who want to know how people have been so silly. And I can tell them, no, they haven't been silly. This is the technique. Let's have a look under the hood. Um, so yes, I've um, I've done a few series of, um, it's a BBC One series called For Love or Money. And that's really excellent. There are three series so far, and it looks at romance fraud. And that's, that's really excellent. Um, I also did an episode quite recently um, on a um, on a TV on a um, TV station called Dave. I don't know if you've heard of it. <laughs> it's actually called Dave, which I always find hilarious. Um, and that's called um, Special Ops UK um, Scam Interceptors, I think it's called. Um, and that's that was really good because what they asked me to do, they didn't just do an interview. They said, here's a fraud. Can you just take us through it? 
have as much time as you want. So I picked it apart, just like I do at home, me and the data, you know, and I just talked and talked and I was in front of the computer, they just filmed it. So if anyone's interested in how you take it apart, how you use these these methodologies to, to unpick for that's that's a good one. And the great thing about that, that it's not on the BBC, although I do love the BBC, but it's on YouTube. So you can actually watch it from anywhere in the world. Um, so that that's a really good one. And the one I've been filming today, I can't really talk about, but it will be out. It's on the BBC and it will be out in April or May in 2023. Um, but what I did want to say um, is that this research that I've mentioned that's coming out in the new year, I'm really pleased to say that it's going to be open access. So anyone can read it. You don't have to pay for it. I, I made sure that it can be accessible and no doubt I'm going to do loads of stuff with it. So it will be even more accessible. I'll, I'll put it in different formats. Um, but again, it's me looking at full protection messaging. Why is it so wrong? Actually, it's damaging people inadvertently and it's hopefully going to shake up the whole forward landscape and say, look, let's change this messaging. Let's actually um, present the victims of crime, the reality of, of fraud, the reality of victimhood, and really get rid of this shame for good, get people reporting the crime, get the criminal justice system doing what they're supposed to be doing. And we can stop fraud being the number one crime in the UK. It's more than half of all crimes in the UK is fraud, 100% saturation rate. You know, because there's no attempt fraud. Fraud is fraud. If you've ever had a text message or email, you've never responded to it. Still, it's fraud. So, this this could be something that could really change things. So that's what I'm going to spend 2023 doing. It's it's really shouting about this research and getting it into practice. <laughs> that is so awesome. And people who aren't in academia don't understand. Like my husband would do articles. He wouldn't get paid for them, and they'd be behind paywalls. So it's like it did. So I'm glad to see this is another great thing about technology and social media that the average person can get into. And I would I would want to see an article. And this was years ago. And I just have my husband download it because he had access. But how many people have someone in academia that they can get in the journal prices are not inexpensive. So I love that you required that to happen. So thank you. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's going to be in the British Journal of Criminology. So it's a big one. And I think it's so important that people that need to read these articles are not academics that automatically get free access. It's the general public, it's practitioners, it's public, private, third sector, it's people who are interested. And if they get a pay, what if they have to spend, you know, however many pounds accessing it? That's not right. Um, and you're right, we don't get paid for articles. It's all, it's all, publishers get everything, they get all the money. So it really pleases me when I manage to get something open access because I I really don't want people to have to spend money to get good advice. Yeah. Well, Liz, thank you so, so much. I'll have lots of show notes. And you know what? I would like to have you back after the big thing in April, May. How, how does that sound? And also, apparently you have a spouse who knows about fraudish and we're going to have him on too. Oh, absolutely fantastic. Yes, yes. Dr. Tim Day, he he would, uh, well, I'm offering his services now, but yes, I mean, we could even be a double act. Um, yes, we're a fraud fighting couple. <laughs> the, yeah, the fraud coming. Thank you so, so much, Liz. I just, this has been wonderful. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you.